Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is the 108th episode of Between the Covers, a conversation with Cheston Knapp, the managing editor of Tin House Magazine, about his debut collection of essays, Up, Up, Down, Down from Scribner. Between the Covers is still a listener-supported labor of love. You can find out how to support the show and what you can get for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers where Chesson Knapp will be adding to the bonus archive material his own defense of and lament about the essay form. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash between the covers, find out all the details there. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, editor, and photographer Cheston Knapp. Knapp is the managing editor of Tin House Magazine, where he has edited the works of Alice Munro, Ursula K. Le Guin, and Karen Russell, among many others. Cheston Knapp's own writing has appeared in One Story, Brick, and Tin House, and garnered him a 2015 Oregon Literary Fellowship in Nonfiction. Chesson Knapp is here today to talk about his first book, a collection of linked essays from Scribner entitled Up, Up, Down, Down, a book that Publishers Weekly picked as one of the top 10 most anticipated books of nonfiction this spring. Anthony Doerr says of Up, Up, Down, Down, you think you're reading about tennis, low-rent wrestling, the death of a neighbor, or the perils of beer pong, but suddenly you're pondering the biggest questions. What is kindness? What is self-consciousness? How does articulating an experience change it? It's an unqualified pleasure to be in Knapp's company. Leslie Jamison adds, The path toward whatever we mean by maturity is a flowering vine of fruitful discomfort in these pages, and so much grows from it. Acute self-awareness, intricate curiosity, tender interrogations. Wells Tower says, with an ordinance of wit, acuity, and casual erudition, these essays explode the local and everyday into huge and moving human reaches. This is the sort of book you look up from to find the dull room around you newly charged with life's important particles. And finally, Maggie Nelson says, 
Chess and Naps Up Up Down Down has the uncanny welcome ability to make so-called mainstream or dominant culture, white, masculinist, Christian, frat boy, and so on, appear newly strange and newly open to analysis. He has the eye and ear of an anthropologist, a joyously expansive vocabulary, a prose style that feels both extravagant and exact, and a big, booming heart. Welcome to Between the Covers, Cheston Knapp. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we're, we're tipped off from the get-go with your two epigraphs that open the collection, one by Coleridge that mm-hmm. says, Oh me, that being what I have been, I should be what I am. And the second by Ashbury, There was I, a stinking adult, that up, up, down, down is going to be about authenticity and identity, respectively. And it feels like each of the seven essays addresses authenticity and identity, but sort of bi-directionally, uh, looking at some aspect of your past identity, but also your fear and anxiety about your, your future one. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how this came to be a book, because um, at least to me, it does not read like a collection in the sense that it's not just whatever you've written between point A and point B. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about how these themes came to rise to the surface and then shape what you were putting together. Right. That's heartening. I worked really hard on trying to get these things to resonate and play off one another in ways that would feel fruitful over the course of the book. I wrote three of the essays um, early uh, first and then realized they were circling some of these same themes and ended up writing three and a half of them uh, with the idea that this was going to be a book and and knew that um, knew sort of some of the notes that were going to be recurring sort of the motif or whatever musical term it would be lay it motif I guess uh, but so some of the questions of authenticity for instance I knew we're going to play out in this essay about tennis and, and David Foster Wallace. Uh, and so it, it, I knew that was going to be the vehicle somewhere in the center to sort of ground that. Um, so and, you can imagine when you have some pieces that you've written just on their own, you, you start to imagine the shape of the book as a whole and write towards the holes that you imagine. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I, um, the wrestling essay, the Beirut essay and the Jules Reynard essay had appeared. And so, um, in Tin House. And so I ended up having to go back and, and rewrite swaths of, of those essays with the later essays in mind um, and, and ended up just fleshing out some of the themes and ideas that I felt were given short shrift first time around. You know how sometimes people say that you can look back and maybe this is more in fiction where you can look back at the first paragraph of a story and you can see everything that later unfolds. Mm-hmm. It sort of feels like that's happening with your opening essay, Faces yeah. of Pain, that you establish this both the ideas of authenticity and identity, but also this really interesting contemplation around the nature of experience and one's relationship to the moment that I feel like echoes through the rest of the book. And we get these unexpected, even though it's on the surface about wrestling, professional professional wrestling, we get these unexpected um, discussions of Roland Barthes and R- Ralph Waldo Emerson and German etymology and, and then your own 
most notably your own sort of experience of feeling at a remove from your your current mm-hmm. lived moment at any given time that somehow the the vitality of the living moment is inaccess- inaccessible to you and you're you're looking at yourself living life um but because this this lays such a great groundwork for the whole collection i was hoping maybe you could read a little bit of it and then we could use that as a jumping off point sure. for some spinning out to some some questions yeah an experience. I wasn't entirely sure what that meant anymore. What had always been an obvious idea had become a kind of phenomenological conundrum for me. A very simple part of the problem was wrapped up in the fact that, in English, we have a single word for two ideas. On the one hand, we register the sensational intensities of the world around us, and this is accomplished through perception of a pre-reflective sort. What senses we have build us a world, immediately, automatically. And on the other, we gain experience over time. It's an aggregate of everything we've gone through, which, with reason and memory's help, implies a learning process, the development of wisdom, at least of a sort. The Germans, unsurprisingly, distinguish between these ideas. They call the first one Erlebnis, which contains their root for life. Leben, and the second, Erfurung, which includes their word for journey, fart, as in Ralph Waldo Emerson's famous dictum, life is a fart, not a destination. My misgivings started with a vague intuition that my Erlebnis machine had malfunctioned. I wasn't experiencing the immediate world as I once had. I was a newlywed and had recently bought a house and been transferred at work, and my puppy had grown into a dog, and the grass I'd planted had come in thin and patchy, and I was startled to discover I actually cared about that, and I was about to turn 30 and had all those cliched and ramifying little anxieties that attend turning that age, and my face was looking increasingly like my father's face and my parents had shocked the family by separating after more than three decades of marriage. All the things of promise in my life had become some version of what they'd promised to become, and something about the way these possibilities had resolved into reality had turned my days palpably strange. New and foreign names populated my inbox, furniture that my wife, Alexis, Alexis, my wife? and I had brought to the relationship didn't fit in our new house. I wasn't 100% on what all my light switches controlled. It unnerved me. Felt like I was living my life in translation. And having, a lo- and having lost a handle in this basic way, I found myself having doubts of the Erfurung variety, getting caught in eddying and abyssal questions I thought I'd put behind me, real ponderous things like, how did I get here? And what's it all mean? Because outside the obvious temporal continuity, I didn't sense there was any narrative coherence to my life. Events from my past were punctuated by a question mark, an entero bang. Were any the result of my having made a concerted effort to become someone? To make something of myself? Or had these things just like, you know, happened? In other words, there seemed to be unproblematic and authentic experience out there in the world to be had, of both the Erlebnis and Erfurung sort, only not by me. During the worst of this, I went to a barbecue at my buddy Kyle's house. 
Kyle casts an unmistakable aura. When you're around him, you begin to feel that life has a certain texture or grain or weave that otherwise, for me at least, doesn't exist. He always seems so full of fucking life. It's intoxicating. So many people come to his BBQs that his backyard starts to look like the thoroughfare of a shanty town. That night, I wandered around talking to Kyle's friends, people who play in bands and make art and casually know all about good music and movies and books, people who ride their bikes everywhere they go, even if that means they show up a little sweaty, people who are apparently so at home with themselves that they're unbothered by the fact that they show up places a little sweaty. My mind felt buffered as if it were in a padded cell, and I was hounded by a passage from The Ambassadors in which Lambert Strether says, Live all you can. It's a mistake not to. It doesn't so much matter what you do in particular, so long as you have had your life. If you haven't had that, what have you had? By which I really mean to say I was hounded by that part in Dazed and Confused when Matthew McConaughey says, You just gotta keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. I ended up in a corner of the backyard by the chicken coop, wondering what instinct tells a baby chicken to peck free of its shell, while Kyle moved from group to group and high-fived all the handsome guys and hugged all the pretty girls and told jokes and laughed and talked plans for his bike crew and his mini bands. Everyone looked like they were having the time of their lives. Kyle and I ended up at a 24-hour Mexican restaurant not far from our houses. It was two in the morning. We got our food and sat at a booth in the big front window, and we could have been in a hopper painting, except we were in Portland at a Mexican joint, so Hopper would have had to paint us on velvet. Kyle was about to start a new job working for a high-end bicycle company, what he called the Rolls-Royce of bikes, doing a mix of advertising and publicity. For as long as I'd known Kyle, he'd managed a bike shop, and for exactly that long, he talked about doing something else. Whatever they're doing, 20 and 30-somethings in Portland are always talking about doing something else. Kyle's dream job was to work in a room with a whiteboard, beanbag chairs, and maybe a beer fridge or kegerator, ping-pong or foosball or arcade games or all of the above, an ideas room. And for five years, he'd worked toward making this happen. He talked about the choices he'd made and would make, changes out on the horizon he'd set a course for. What an enviable sequence of cause and effect his life seemed. So what about you, he asked when he was done. What are your plans for the future? For as long as I'd known Kyle, I'd worked as the major domo of a summer camp for writers and as a magazine editor, and for exactly that long I'd talked about writing myself so I said I'd probably continue to look for ways to prioritize that. But really I wanted to say that the future, like everything else in my life, wasn't quite what it used to be. We've been listening to Cheston Knapp read from his book, Up, Up, Down, Down. So we, we often hear the advice, particularly with nonfiction, that it is wise to have a remove the passage of time, the vantage point of retrospection before we write about life's biggest moments. Yet here we're talking about experiencing a remove during the moment itself. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to this idea of seeing other people the way you see Kyle as having it figured out, 
living in an embodied way, um, having some sort of vitality and comfort with life as it's happening. But I wondered about this on a craft level. Like, for instance, um, I think about the Charles D'Ambrosio adage that sometimes you need to make the problem with the essay the the topic of the essay. Right. And then I wondered, um, because you do this great job with, in the collection as a whole of dramatizing and portraying this sense of remove from the present moment, is that the result of a D'Ambrosian insight uh, around this problem in your life? Or, or on the contrary, is is writing about a remove actually something that writing just naturally does well? Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably some combination of the two. You know, it's funny because when Kyle, you know, read this essay in particular, the first draft of it, um, or an early draft of it, he didn't recognize the vitality, right? You know, he's walking around with his own sense of remove. And a lot of my friends, I think, have this. I think everyone has, has it maybe to some degree that that there is this scrim between you and in the world. And I don't know if that's a modern problem or one that's been with us for the long haul, but I, I do think that writing can help you when you start thinking about an experience, you already are at a remove. And so that just seemed a natural place to feel like, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to explore this here. The D'Ambrosio line is really, something that I've sort of had with me over the years. Um, and I think it's very true that, that, that you can't relate to the world can become a, 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 the sort of, you know, focus of and of the essay. Um, and I, I don't know if you can do that in fiction as well as you can in nonfiction. I think people would have less patience with you as a storyteller, but nonfiction seems to allow this mode of, I don't know, self-reflection in a way that it feels to me, feels felt right to me for the project that at hand here, if that makes sense. Like that does make sense. Um, that the essay is, uh, sort of questions its very form as it, it can question its very form in a way that fiction can't quite, it, it, you know, the, the instances that I think of that of attempts to question the form are the metafictionists from the, from the 60s and 70s who, when it's done well, it's spectacular, but when it's not, it's, you know, it sounds a little petulant, like a little bit, people like, why do I have to write a story? And it's like, you you don't have to write a story, <laughs> you know, like. Write something um, else. Yeah, write something else. And uh, so th the essay form itself seems self-questioning in, in a way that I found very fruitful uh, as I was working through some of the material in the book. Um, well, it made me wonder, mainly because of stuff I've read about science being done on writing, around how writing, creating form uh, from your experience can change your relationship to memory and can and actually change your relationship to traumatic memory even. Um, has your relationship to the remove or has the remove itself changed at all in the process of you meditating on it, creating an object out of it, creating art out of it, yeah. and then um, and, and doing that all on your own terms. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think it has in a way, and I, I like the way that art can solve or can basically not solve, but allay it in a way. Um, I feel it less acutely now after, I, you know, I, having 
spent so much time on the book and I don't know whether I've just made peace with it or it is just uh, certain life circumstances have changed and so I'm not thinking about the remove as much. So I became a parent, a dad, you know, um, and, and there's something about that that shifted. Like I had to take a step left of myself in a way. Um, and which means that, that certain roles or certain questions of authenticity or, you know, worrying over my own relationship to the world has sort of taken a back seat in some way, or I'm not, sure I'm comfortable saying it's totally resolved or like out, you know, I've done, but, uh, I do think it's less of a pressing question. And I think that's, that's a result of having spent five years on this thing and, and looked at notions of authenticity and identity from many different ways, you know, like many yeah. different avenues. So, well, I love that we're sort of untangling this paradox between this idea that your own life feels less authentic than the lives of others that you observe yeah. um, by looking at professional wrestling, which a lot of people would think of as perhaps the the least authentic of right. sports. Right. Um, uh, so tell us a little bit about the shoot and the work in, yeah. in wrestling and what those are. Um, yeah. Because those are great metaphors for no, a lot of what you're great. doing. Yeah. I, I mean, it seemed a, a, an area or a... A perf as a performance, it, it was really fascinating to me. So that you have this shoot, which is everything that happens in the in the wrestling match that's that's real, right? So it hurts to get slapped in the face. It hurts to sort of be upended and fall on your back. In you know, there's a lot of actual pain that goes on in these orchestrated matches. They're uh, so they're not. Um, totally fake you know there's some uh, modality of reality that they're working within um and the work is everything we know to be fake right there's there's script there's scripts for these things but you often don't know how you're gonna arrive at at the end so there's a kind of dinner theater like sketch comedy kind of thing that's going on with the performance so this mix of the real as it's experienced in the ring and and yet there being this performance going on that you have to fulfill certain um, narrative elements by the end of the match seemed to me to be a very potent metaphor for just how I was walking around, you know, and that there are things that I'm conscious, there are identities that I'm consciously having to play, uh, and yet they, they feel false, you know, and that like some of the, the pain one is experiencing feels real. And yet, uh, whatever relationship gave, gave birth to that pain felt false. So, it was a it confused the the notion of experience for me in a way that I felt was really fruitful. It made me wonder. I mean, I don't know if this is too much of a tangent, but it made me wonder what if you had a philosophy of self. Like I've talked about this with Eileen Miles and Ray Armentrout, particularly mm -hmm. recently. Um, and if we think about like the difference between the shoot and the work. The difference between the self and the and one of our personas, yeah. But is there a self? Like I think Eileen would have argued that maybe the the layering of gestures, the the gestures that we choose, are actually the self. Yeah, that they're not something. They're not the the work. Right. That actually the thing we think of as the work is the self. Yeah. 
I, you know, I think I've probably come down to something like that. But, um, you know, I think I started the book with maybe a more essentialist version or notion of the self, that there were parts of me that were real and that I would, by growing up, learn how to privilege those or scour away the the parts of me that felt false that you could you could eradicate them um in in writing the book and and sort of thinking about notions of my own identity and how i relate to to past selves i think i have come more towards something uh a little bit more i don't know polyamorous or you know like uh polyvocal yeah polyvocal for sure that that's actually a word that um I've been thinking a lot about and did a lot of thinking uh, around for, for the book, that Bakhtinian notion of polyvocal books. But so I would I think I would, you know, cast my lot as with so many other things with Eileen here and say, you know, there are situations that give birth to the need of a gesture or a and that one's self is one is is the ways in which one fulfills those social needs or, you know, especially in interacting with other people. Um, I feel like there's some Greek notion of the phronimus, like the, there's like the uh, um, the man who or the person who in any situation knows the right thing to do. Hmm. Right. And and so there's a that the situation demands almost ethically or morally a response that a person attuned with the situation will know how to navigate it. And I think there's something to that that sticks with me that a situation will arise and it has, you know, a, a certain number of ways that it can play out. And being familiar with yourself and how you have responded to these situations in the past help judge how you're going to do that now. And I think that's the Eileen's layering or layering of gestures is you sort of know what your response is to a tense situation or a funny situation or, yeah. So I don't know if, I don't know, I don't have a theory of the self that I'm going to outline. <laughs> That's not here. your next book? <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> uh, some like triangle, conjoined triangles of success, you know, yeah. Uh, no, I... Well, tell tell us how Roland Barthes ends up in, in this wrestling essay. It's one of the great pleasures of a lot of these essays is this this strange mixture of high and low that we get. Um, right. But um, what is what is his interest in wrestling and what is his contribution to wrestling philosophy? <laughs> well, it, 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 he has that essay, I think that every, you know, in mythologies that every, you know, English nerd kid in college encounters. And it was one of these, those ones that always stuck with me because there are a lot of them in there that feel dated. And, and yet when my friend asked me, my friend Scott, he's the photographer, he did a photo essay that goes along with the book, or that goes along with the essay. Uh, we were talking, it was, it was one that came up. And so Bart was doing all this like, He's almost, you know, a godfather in a way of taking low culture and like low, quote unquote, and saying, what's going on here? Let's like think about this. So he uh, called it a thought of it as like a performance of it was a spectacle. It was a it was a place that the audience knew that that this was a spectacle. And yet in which certain um, big word ideas were being enacted. So justice, for instance, or retribution. I mean, it's the same, but like that you knew why the person was suffering and, and you knew he deserved it. 
or didn't deserve it. And that playing those lines was part of the pleasure that one got from it. That valence of real fake was that they were pointing that that wrestling points at that is my read on the bard is like, oh, yeah, that's why this is pleasurable and why people find it, you know, why it's still around all these years later, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. So he, he that was just a book that an essay that, that you I felt I had to attribute, you know, like it, it, in certain cases throughout the book, there were things that I knew other writers had done, had tilted at. And if you it was it would have been irresponsible for me not to have brought up Bart in a, in an essay about pro wrestling. It's the same way, like in writing about Wallace you, or writing about Federer, you have to bring up Wallace sure. in a way. There's certain things like I come from a tradition, the essayistic. You know, I I think a lot about the tradition of literature and 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 um, trying in some ways to contribute to it in some very, very small way. Like these ideas are just bouncing around in my head. And so giving some acknowledgement to where the idea would have come from is, is important to me without being sighty, like a citation, uh, you know, like a, like a term paper terms. I don't like that. Well, yeah. bef- before we talk about any of the other essays, I-, I-, I would love to step back and look a little at some of the things you've said about the essay as a form. Mm-hmm. And one of them is you've said personal essays are cheapest when they only traffic in personal experience. And I, I was just wanting to hear more about that. If- yeah. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't think that the personal essay is just a story from one's life that you tell and that it that it solves the problem of intimacy because it's a real every writer sits down and has to solve that problem of perceived intimacy right that's what successful writing does it says wow i'm in the presence of some body or a character or whatever and i feel like personal essays have come to a point where we can just assume this is a real person and so that solves it right or uh that says oh this person really experienced this wow and that's like the most interesting right. thing those essays do or like the that sort of limited conception of what the personal essay could do for for me the problem was how to use myself as a as sort of a metaphor for myself in some way and uh it, so that like you're building intimacy through using certain revelations from your life or certain parts of yourself that you sculpt into a persona. But it's more interesting to me if you can use that as an invitation to some other form of thinking or inquiry, right? So to be conscious of it as like, okay, this is, we're going to be thinking about uh, the difference between fake and real experience and like how can I embody that in my own experience, but tap into these other ideas so that a reader who's following along might then peel off and go, oh, I, you know, I've never been to a professional wrestling thing, but I've also felt my life to be, you know, like that the fake stuff feels more urgent or, you know what I mean? That they're trying to work out their own relationship to themselves. So there's a, there's a certain amount of 
receding of the self that needs to happen. Like for me, like a peeling away of the of of my own self just to the essential bits that I feel I need to curry a kind of intimacy with the reader. Mm. Um, but that's never, I didn't feel like there was a quote unquote story here that I had been through that I needed to tell, you know, um, it was, it was more, uh, a necessity of, of like whatever ideas were happening, you know? And, And you've also said that you wanted the book to be an idealized form of conversation. Um, and that I, that phrase is interesting, the tension between idealized and conversation, yeah. I think. Um, when you think of conversations being loose and meandering, right. and then thinking of that in an idealized form. Right. So um, tell us about that. Tell us what, what is an ideal conversation like for you, and, and what are your considerations when, when trying to create that feeling for a reader that they're in one? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> it, Listening to your past podcast, I think you, you you pretty much approximated here on this show, which is you're able to pursue digressions and ideas that come up along the way that might not seem germane when they're first introduced, but you can find a way to have them echo back or be part of the the pattern or the fabric of whatever you're talking about, right? So for me, I wanted to allow myself a certain ranginess and just a kind of fluency with the language that that felt um, felt colloquial and and yet not just not just cheaply colloquial, like that it felt like uh, like a strategy that I was saying, okay, I know, I always knew how long it had been since I had attempted a joke, you know? Like if, if I were going through some exposition of some idea, I, I knew, okay, this is starting to get boring, or I knew, like that, that sense of time to move on, time to try a, a laugh or something. Um, so it is that ramblingness, and part of what you're looking for for me, it, it, you, like walking on the streets of New York, you end up walking over those subway grate things, or uh, not subway gates, but the steps down to the uh, basement of a store. You know, like they they open them up, and that's where they stock their their goods. And there's always that like uh, moment where it kind of gives under your feet a little bit. You know, like mm-hmm. where you walk over the over the little grade and you feel like, whoa, that just went over something and you can do it unthinkingly. I was always looking for those moments where there was like some subterranean thing below me in the writing where I knew that was going to open up into steps that n- needed to be explored in a way. There was this interesting description by uh, James Scott in the, his podcast okay. conversation with you that, I mean, you talk about these steps that need to be explored, but he also suggested that your essays are like riffs where you can see alternate paths not taken. And yeah. I really like that idea that that the essay could suggest paths that the essay itself doesn't take. Right. But that the reader could take. Yeah. Like while they're reading the essay. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, that that's that's very true. And a lot of that is um being very conscious of like what I didn't want the essays to list into, which is kind of a marshalling out of learning or whatever. Uh, I didn't want to feel like an authority. I wanted to feel like someone who was inviting you to think about things as well. So a lot of my writing process is pairing stuff out that feels 
um, like too leaning too much on other thinkers or uh, that feels too much like not personal, right? Like it feels like a, you know, an academic exercise in saying, here's what so-and-so means by this, you know? So there are passages in the book that I have to say, or I felt I had to say, to, to sort of uh, break down or parse certain ideas, but I wanted to do that as, as sparsely or as, you know, as possible. Yeah. Um, because I did want that sense of like, oh, wow, yeah, I've thought about, I've heard that phrase, anxiety of influence before, like, what is it? You know, and I, like, I have to explain it, but in a way that I hope allows a reader to sort of uh, go off on his or her own, that we're almost holding hands in a way yeah. as we're going through these things. And that, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the essay Learning Curves, okay? Um, which twins your early journal writing with your discovery of the journals of the French writer Jules Renard and how they impacted your idea of writing and becoming a writer. And I Tin House is publishing his journals, right? Yeah, yeah. He we did it. Um, there've been two ish, two editions now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect most listeners probably, or a lot of listeners probably, don't know who he is. So tell us, tell us who is this guy, and and yeah, what, why were his journals of such uh, fascination and even transformative fascination? For yeah, he, he was a French writer at the turn of the century. I'll butcher it in French, but La Belle Epoque, you know, or, uh, when sort of Alfred Jerry was walking around with his six shooters, Azubu Roy, and um, a lot of like experimentation uh, going on. And he was most known for a autobiographical novel that he wrote, um, but. I found him through, you know, that radio interviewer, uh, Michael Silverblatt. Mm -hmm. um, he mentioned that Donald Barthelme had been carrying around the, the journals for, and, you know, he, he was given, Silverblatt got into him because of Barthelme. And I was really reading a lot of Barthelme then and wanted to know, oh, why would he have like these stories. So a lot of, you know, literary, you know, inquisition for me or like curiosity is always just like, who, who, who do I, who that I like, who are they reading? You know? So it's like following little, uh, tributaries to see what, you know, what, what, what did they steal anything from them? But I found the journals to be really witty and earnest and, um, to sort of, foreground his own experience in a way that I found uh, liberating after having tried to write a bunch of fiction and uh, I I was it just was it came at a time when I needed it you know it was just one of those books where he was making sentences that were not on the surface really ambitious but the things that he was putting together so like the metaphors he would make seemed really exciting to me because they seemed to push the two things being compared about as far as possible away with them still making sense as a as a pair and that i found really exciting yeah yeah i couldn't stop writing down they're like epigrammatic sentences yeah. and I'll, i'm gonna read a couple of yeah, them yeah. just because they're so Please great do. so here are some of jules renard's um thoughts i always stop on the brink of what will not be true is one. Um, happy people have no right to be optimists. It is an insult to sorrow. Um, and then uh, my favorite one, 
imagine life without death every day you would try to kill yourself out of despair. <laughs> I think that's really great. Yeah. But, but one of the things you, you, we watch you discover as the essays, as this essay progresses is that as you progress through the life of Jules Renard, you see this, um, second meaning of experience happening in time. Like right. you see him accumulating experience and changing because of this accumulated experience as his life unfolds. Right. But you yourself are having skepticism b- about whether uh, insight necessarily uh, follows experience. Right. So maybe for Renard it, it does, but that doesn't mean it's going to for you. Yeah. That was the real nervy thing for me, you know, is seeing someone. I mean, that's what reading a writer's journal is always, the, I think, a real pleasure is saying, wow, they they sort of figured out a relationship to the craft or the art that that they were able. It was a peaceable relationship. For me, it was kind of tumultuous through the early writing of this book, just trying to figure out what it was that I was going to write. I it took me a very long time to figure that out. And I think you have to settle on that form or that you have to get a sense of what it is you're doing before you're able to solve that sense of experience being something that can yield wisdom or insight that can affect then affect your life. You know, it's easy for me to sort of fake it where it's like I can, I can recognize a pattern and then, for the sake of the of a piece, make an insight. It's very hard for me to then take that insight and have it feed into lived experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So it also feels like another maybe um, D'Ambrosian move in the sense that if if you're not sure insight's going to come from experience, maybe uh, maybe you're not sure that insight's going to come from the essay. Yeah. So the essay becomes about the anxiety of not finding insight. Yeah, yeah. Which is very insightful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, but there there can be a preponderance of insight in a way that, like, I, I'm not sure that the essay needs only to traffic in insight either, um, you know, because because of the problems of then taking an observation or an, or an insight and then and then trying to live one's life according to to that or to incorporate it into your being in a way like um I, i'm still unsure of how much that is able to happen mm-hmm. um which might which i think charlie would agree with in some way it feels like it comes out of his essays too um well this is a, about where in the book where we start to get your a sense of your fear of of fraudulence as a writer so mm-hmm. Uh, the first inklings of your anxiety about can I be a, a writer in an authentic way? Mm-hmm. Um, am I just an editor of writers um, and yeah. not a writer myself? But if we flip the tables on you and, and make you the one being observed, so you're Kyle now. Right. Um, I imagine a lot of people are are would be surprised and they would be like, wow. And they'd have all these questions for you, and I'm sure you had all these questions. How How did you become the editor of a top-notch journal right. at such a young age? Or or how did your first published short story end up in one of the best fiction journals in the country, one story? Um, so I wanted to read a, a Paul Valery quote you cited in an interview and then just ask you a question about that. So Paul Valery once said, as quoted by you, um, it seems to me that every mortal possesses very nearly at the center of his mechanism and well-placed among the instruments for navigating his life, 
a tiny apparatus of incredible sensitivity, which indicates the state of his self-respect. There we we read whether we admire ourselves, adore ourselves, despise ourselves, or should blot ourselves out. And some living pointer, trembling over the secret dial, flickers with terrible nimbleness between the zero of a beast and the maximum of a god. It's an amazing quote, by the way. It's so good. God, if I, just the way he goes zero of a beast to the maximum. So yeah. you don't even know. He goes from a number to yeah. like a con, you know, an yeah. abstraction. It's amazing. But I definitely have the feeling, have, I've had that feeling of vacillating between thinking something that I've written is amazing in one moment and just completely worthless in the next moment. Um, and, and we do see you reach for sort of the godly authenticity in the book, but I wonder if you are ever feeling that moment of the maximum of a God. I don't feel like you dramatize <laughs> the moment. You, you, you dramatize the desire. Yeah. It's, but I wonder, like, were you ever like running around the house going, holy crap, I just edited Alice Monroe," <laughs> or, or, oh my God, this, I got this piece placed in such and such. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's mostly, I feel like I don't flicker that high <laughs> you know like my flickering is between you know whether i despise myself or whether i'm like oh can live with myself <laughs> you know between on his so your dial's four, broken yeah my dial's a little messed up i mean i there have been thrills along the way like editing alice monroe and and you know call, calling her up and feeling in those moments like what is going what is going on how did i you know I'm just incredibly lucky to have been exposed to those the caliber of writer I've been able to work with. And yet at the same time, working with those writers in some way shut down a kind of writing for me. So I went through a thing in my you know late 20s of having worked on all these really awesome stories and feeling like my own fiction was the best metaphor I can think of is that I was looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope, that everything felt so far away and so inconsequential. And I do think it was because of having worked on, you know, a Nobel winner and saying like, okay, like this, uh, the the urgency was gone for me to tell these kinds of stories. And so... Um, that sent me, so it's like cool on one hand, but there's always this, this double edged where it was like that shut down a whole form for me for a while. Um, and these, these experiences are, um, always undercut or, or sort of qualified in some way, the sort of editorial pleasures that one has in working with folks like Karen or Charlie or, you know. But do you think also there's something about the story? Like I think of the novel and the essay having a lot more uh, give in terms of what people expect it to mm-hmm. look like versus a short story, at least in the United States. Yeah, I do think that's true. And I think um, there's also a sense that uh, I fell prey to the conception that if you want to be a writer of fiction, you start with short stories and you figure out that – and yet at the same time, everyone says this is the most punishing, unforgiving form there is. You know, if you're not fulfilling the, the sort of goals, the storytelling elements of a story, of a standard short story, then you're writing against them. You know, like we know it's only two. 
You know, you're either self-consciously filling or, uh, or writing against the expectations of, of a short story. And I agree, an essay, like I didn't realize yet that certain, like me not caring too much about myself to put it out there was like a strength and not something to be, hmm. you know, avoided. Um, that, that helped, that opened it up for me like opened up a new new path but in the in the moment of doing of editing those folks i was you know really down uh i mean it was exciting of course to you know get stories in best american or any of that you you feel like right. you're on the front lines of literature in a way but you also feel like only part of you is you know um well the flip side of that experience seems to be your family and your childhood experience. Like when I think about your fear of fraudulence in that light, um, none of what you end up doing, falling in love with words, writing about them, editing them seems to be modeled by your family or your peers. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the options before you, you explore, for instance, joining a frat or evangelical Christianity, but you never seem to be able to fit, uh, when you do try and with regards to religion specifically, you write about how you grew up in a church where people spoke in tongues, where God might literally speak to you, and where the words of the Bible were literal, not parables or allegories. And it, it feels like you almost have to imagine yourself into a new life. And that very active imagination, which by its nature would not be literal, would... would um, itself be a leaving of, 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 of your place of origin in a strange way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is a journey implied by developing a, a self, you know, and especially one, I would say that most of the family has been on this journey together. So my mom, for instance, isn't any longer part of that same strain of Christianity and my brothers aren't either. And we've, we've all sort of gone. I mean, it's easy to see a sort of, uh, biblical parallel to this too, the sort of Exodus or, you know, dispelling from the garden. Um, but I, yeah, I think that you end up having to prod and poke the space that you feel from the given, right, from the sort of facticity, to use a fancy word, of your life. You're born into a certain world, and given the kind of parents you are, have, which mine were great growing up. I had a really amazing and supportive childhood and and yet started to feel distance from it at about 30 because of you know my parents getting divorced and all this stuff and then you start questioning well what did i come from what what are the things that i inherited that n need to be questioned that are a part of you i mean for me like for instance the religion stuff like you don't spend as much time in church basements as i have and be able to turn and then be able to turn your back on it completely, you know, there's something that gets in you yeah. and good, uh, that finds its way, finds its way into other avenues that you're, you encounter later. Um, well, it reminded me a little bit of, there's an essay by, by Ray Armentrout about her upbringing, which I, I, it sounds like it was similar to yours called cosmology and me. And, and she writes about how nothing was metaphorical. Like the, the garden of Eden was, 
was a literal place. Yeah. Um, and you've talked and written before about how, for you, writing and reading is is a miracle of mm-hmm. sorts, and partly because of the metaphor. Can you can you talk a little bit about about that for you like because in a way it feels like you use i mean the idea of the the miraculous nature of 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 writing something down and someone reading it yeah and what's happening when we create metaphor yeah Uh, i i man i think metaphor is in itself an event you know like it's a it's a thing that you put into the that happens to the world and that's why you can feel those striking moments of recognition when you're reading someone, you know, so that you end up saying like, how did you know that this was what my experience was too? You know, that, that the, the miracle that happens is, uh, that, that collapse of the self, you know, that, 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 and, and that sort of, if not collapse, then emerging with another self. But I would also say that the writer, so for me, it's reading has always been, um, well, since I start, I didn't read growing up very much. You know, I started reading when I was about 20, like seriously, right? Like it took, it took some classes in, in college. I, I went to college as a business, business major, uh, and then took a couple survey courses and realized, oh, wow, uh, I'm actually like into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sense that the, the writer is setting it down and participating in language in the same way that a reader is and that, in that like excitement of collapsing the, the, the walls of, of self in a way that allows a broader range of experience, right? So you're, you're sort of self-questioning or finding ways that, finding ways to escape the, the literal bounds of your body and your own mind in a way. And so that's what, you know, writing and metaphor for me, it, that's the miracle of it that you can that you can dip into some power that feels like it's beyond you in a way hmm. um and maybe that's that to bring it back to that valerie that maximum of a god you know i those i i do think that that's the 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 feeling when you set some a metaphor down that you feel like yeah that that does it that perfectly articulates whatever the experience that I had was in a way that makes it available to someone else, you know? I mean, because what is God other than, you know, someone who's able to, the word made flesh, you know? Like, uh, so language is a very deeply rooted in my notion of God in a way, even back from the literal days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Cheston Knapp, the author of the essay collection, Up, Up, Down, Down. So at your book launch at Powell's, John Raymond, who was interviewing you, asked you a question about the book, a book that in many ways, which we haven't really touched on, is is questioning what it means to be a man, mm-hmm. um, both around your own father and then your your imminent fatherhood. And also the book is, is I would say, very bro-ish mm-hmm. in its... In its broadest strokes. Yeah. I don't think it is ultimately, but the topics on the surface, the skateboarding, frats, wrestling right. are, are, are very gendered in, in this case. So John Raymond, he, he questioned or was curious about how this book was engaging with the Me Too movement and the notion of toxic masculinity. And you had an interesting response. And if I remember it correctly, you said that 
um, your per- preferred title for the book was Man Boy a Lament, which I love, <laughs> and that you didn't feel like Up, Up, Down, Down was was really part of the Me Too conversation, but that instead the emblems of toxic masculinity were sort of a failed ideal of the book. You were like in the book striving to sort of achieve these these goals of toxic masculinity and not finding your your place in them or your younger self was. Um, but am I, am I saying that right? Yeah, I mean, I think for... Uh, Without and this is what writing and reading does to you is is it broadens your notions of what an experience can be and that what was available to me, I'm not saying insensitivity was the mode you know because I do think I come from a sensitive stock um, like I saw my dad cry like some people he said I love you like these things that like I didn't I don't have the standard uh, laments of people. Um, you know, like this, the standard, you know, sad, sad boy things. But uh, I did look to, a, and I think it's wrapped up in that looking at people, what I imagine Kyle was experiencing, a kind of unproblematic experience of life. And um, what was presented to me, you know, frat boys or, you know, wrestlers or skaters, you know, that seemed, it seemed a relief to be able to dissolve into an identity or into a group. And, and yet I realized that that was not going to happen for me. Um, the, the sort of problems with toxic masculinity is the positive feedback loop that happens when you get a bunch of unthinking people together, right? Like, and what I, started to realize is that I, I was never going to be unthinking, you know, or uh, like never going to be able to dissolve into a group. Mm-hmm. And so there was always this question of, again, fraudulence, like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. Um, but, but that there were, th- those were the ideals or the roles that I was, I had laid upon myself just given who, where I grew up, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and kind of a southern inflected, you know, house and place. And so given that, I, trying to navigate it was, was interesting, trying to navigate the sort of group mentality, you know, I didn't have the artistic, like, confidence or um, social confidence in high school and beyond, really, to say, I don't fit here. You know, I still wanted to be part of the cool kids, you know, and failed to do that. I still wanted a certain kind of girlfriend and failed to do that. And that for a while bothered me. But there was a way I'm going to argue that it does engage with it. And I want to hear what your thoughts are on it, because there's a way in which you portray this that I feel like contributes in an interesting way to the conversation. So at Pals, you read a section from your essay, um, Something's Gotta Stick, and that was about your nostalgia for skateboarding mm-hmm. growing, growing up, a nostalgia that prompts you to sign up for an adult skateboarding camp, but you go and discover that it's you're the only adult. There's just tweeners and teens skating, and you're there with them, and, and you read a scene where you all go on a field trip with the campers to a water park, and in the wave pool, a girl's bikini top gets displaced, and you see her nipple. And it made me think of this discussion that I had with Juno Diaz and some of the implications of writing about male sexual desire from a radically subjective point of view, Uh, a point of view where, in general, perhaps none of the other characters are dimensionalized because you're so deeply in the consciousness of Mm -hmm. the point of view of the the person. 
um, which can become problematic if we're talking about sexual desire and the object of sexual desire is ultimately rendered an object. Um, But what you do in this piece is really interesting, I think, because on the one hand, you slow down the moment and you really show us and in detail, your reflexive response, sort of your automatic pre-thought response, which is the assessment of the naked breast, its dimensions, detail, and attractiveness. And you don't shy away f- from dramatizing the moment. But then you're, quick, you're, you're quickly again in a remove, like often in the book. And you're looking at yourself looking mm-hmm. and feeling shame for how you've turned this person into an object and, and this breast into an object extracted, abstracted from a person. And you analyze and struggle with this shame. And, and to me, it feels like the honesty of the, of, of the moment before you feel the shame um, and the dramatization and opening up and even the length of time you spend in it before you then add the overlay would be a moment where male readers could recognize something similar that they've experienced in themselves and then be led to confront and grapple with it. I'm not saying that's, and make meaning from it. I'm not saying that's why it's there, (laughs) but it does feel like, um, it makes me understand maybe when Maggie Nelson says you, you've made the male dominant culture newly strange and newly open to analysis. Right. I do think that like self-reflexive move, uh, is important and humanizing in a way that, um, it, you know, male sexuality, hetero, you know, male sexuality is, is, can, I mean, we see it, it's a problem in a lot of instances, but showing that, uh, what for me was the experience, like, uh, of seeing this thing and you do have this immediate response, right? You see, I don't know, desire kicks into action or whatever it is you know the gaze kicks in you can't avoid it if uh but but then there is that second move of you know everything else that's going on all the other uh sort of more human elements which are shame embarrassment uh you know exposure all this stuff that i i felt like I hadn't seen stuff like that before that goes that shows that uh, that switchback. Mm-hmm. And that's just it, I mean, that's just my own relationship to to women you know, in a way, too, which is always just this like, you know, I, I got rejected enough growing up that there was this like, you know, dance that goes on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I get nervous around this because I don't know exactly other than honoring my own thought process and experience. I, I don't the, the politics of it make me n- nervous because I I, I want to say that particularity of experience is what saves it from being outright political. Uh, but what I would argue, and maybe, I mean, tell me if, if you think this is off base, but I would argue that someone else who might also be concerned about the politics might self-censor. Yeah. And they might just go to the, they might just skip that experience. Yeah. And, and you dwell in that experience, right. even if it is um, a politically incorrect experience. Sure. Because you experienced it. Right. Yeah, I think that, I mean... I, Again, I think the particularity, it became interesting to me when I put in the part, you know, when I started to describe it, it felt like, okay, I knew there was going to be the switchback, 
it, where there is the humanizing of like sensing, having my mirror neurons start firing and, and feeling like, oh gosh, this is, this is really embarrassing for this girl. And now I'm embarrassed. And we're sort of in this very awkward moment together. Um, so what was interesting to me about it was the particularity of that switch from desire to shame and embarrassment so quickly, you know? And I, th I agree. Like there were, I, f I felt nervous putting it in, but then it felt fruitful in a way that I it was maybe couldn't articulate, you know, I don't know. What I really liked about the Maggie Nelson take on the book too, is like, for instance, most of the things on the surface uh, in this book, evangelical Christianity, skateboarding, frats, tennis, beer pong, they're, they're, they are things that I don't have a natural draw Right. to want to read about myself. In fact, I would even argue that I have a somewhat of an aversion because I associate those things with uh, people who would beat me up when I was a kid, yeah. for instance. Um, and so they're signifiers that have a negative. Right. And, and yet I love all these essays. Like right. they're, I mean, it didn't ultimately matter what they were about right. on the surface because right. of the exploration you do from them. So, yeah. I mean, I want to read about I, I mean, I don't abstractly want to read about skateboard moves and skateboarding language. Yeah. But then we get into the language of the um, philosophy of perception and right. um, and metaphysics and then the questions around nostalgia and multiple selves. Um, and I and I can see where she she would view you as an anthropologist in that yeah. sense. That, yeah. And this is maybe comes back to this idea that. And the cheapest form of an essay is just personal experience because you're not just writing, oh, I went to a skateboard camp and exactly. this is what happened. Exactly. I mean, I hope that it opens on to other things. I mean, what, what, my, what I aspire to read and write in the personal essay form is that sense of taking and reclaiming a personal experience into some other form of inquiry, right? Marshalling out just this is what happened is uninteresting to me. That's one part of what an essay has to do. You have to, you know, assess some, but that's like a very basic craft problem. What is this, what's going to be the architecture of this piece? Not how, what, how am I going to furnish it, you know, and what, uh, with what thoughts am, am I going to animate the persona? Um, you know, if we start saying, that we only want to read about stuff. I mean, then, then you get into dangerous territory, right? If you're censoring on the level of content in that way, then you're never going to encounter something outside of your own perspective, right? right. Like, I don't want to read, you know, if you, if you start saying, I don't want to read, uh, you know, trans woman writing or whatever it is that, that because I don't identify with it, then, then we're in really murky and, and bad waters, you know, yeah. like that. In other words, the, the goal is to take one's personal experience and say, this is not all I have to offer. There is some bridge that this can can take. Well, let's pivot to the question of, of influence. And you mentioned uh -huh. the anxiety of influence. Also, this feels like maybe a way in which this is part of a collection that is about masculinity too, I think. Um, in your piece, Far From Me, we, we, you're exploring your admiration for Roger Federer and also writing under the long shadow of, of David Foster Wallace and trying to trace um, who influenced him, who he borrowed from, who he stole from, in order to figure out who, how he became who he became, which also points to a paradox, like how we look right. to imitate 
or find out about others in order to be ourselves. Right. Um, but it is particularly when you talk about Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence and, and about the shame you would feel when you found yourself caring what other people thought mm-hmm. and thus letting the outside world influence you. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, that the word authentic comes from the Greek word to murder. Yeah. Um, and this framing of influence, the Harold Bloom framing, where it almost feels like you have to kill or surpass the person um, right. who comes before you or the person who might stand in your place now instead <laughs> of you. Um, I mean, I don't want to generalize too much, but it feels like like women writers today or or um, are more interested in connecting, and this is a gross generalization, but that there's a lot more of effort towards connecting and, ex- and um, bringing you to the surface links and connections and influences, almost right. as if the influences themselves are, are a good thing. And you're, yeah. you're, you're, um, or, and even bringing back erased links. So you're, you're creating a fabric. Yeah. And I, I, I was curious about, um, if you could talk about anxiety of influence in relationship to, uh, in, in relationship to the book and, and maybe some of the ideas you're exploring around manhood. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is really interesting. I, um, I thought that, like the to believe the anxiety of influence means that you in the Bloom's conception that you have to kill your artistic father is a misconception, one that persisted to today. And before I read the book and started thinking about it, thought and it's just it's just wrong, mm-hmm. right? So you end up um, there is an agon for him, you know, a sort of battle, but uh, it, with sort of your creative air, your, you know, your whatever lineage you're dealing with. Um, but what ends up happening is that there, uh, th- there is just this community. Like it's not a, just a, a, a sort of uh, kingdom or lineage where you're, it's just a bunch of people killing off the people who came before. That's just, that's just not what he believes, you know, that you end up th- the work itself is the struggle with the creative uh, forebear, Right. So you end up with a web of connections is his is his sort of uh, conception. And I, I believe that in, in much the same way that like you're talking about, um, you know, women writers bringing connections and influences to the surface. Uh, I, you know, I think I had with Wallace a certain combative relationship early on because I was still green and the writers who I've sort of now later found uh, to be really helpful for me didn't have any problem with influence you know so for instance Robert Louis Stevenson his nonfiction work has been really informative for me and it's it's hilarious and uh, generous and and he was nothing if not accepting of influence he would say I'd read this you know, ghost story in this magazine. And I wanted to write a ghost story. So I thought I could do that. Yeah. You know, like that, that sense of it, that welcoming of influence, I think is, um, I don't know if it's gendered so much as just whether it's adult, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit, I think that the right now, a lot of stuff that we're considering gendered might just be like, it feels uh, like the first step, you know, it might just be like, well, it's, that's immature to think I have to kill somebody's work off. You know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just immature. And so when you get a little bit more 
uh, I don't know, older and a little bit, you've been in the world longer, you start to see how silly that is and say, no, actually, you know, bring on the influence. There's a, you know, there's a, that only means work's being done. Right. If you're being, you know, if you're being influenced, great. You know, that means you're doing work, you know. Can you talk about some of the things you discovered when you were sleuthing around David Foster Wallace? I mean, there's this, the way his identity is in the world is this sort of self you think, at least I think of him as this self-constructed yeah. creature really that good. appears out of nowhere. But yeah. um, where where did he where did he? Um, well, he comes borrow? out of yeah. He comes out of that you know um, strain of '60s and '70s metafictionists, and uh, a, a lot of folks uh, like Gaddis and um, I mean N- Nicholson Baker's early work. I mean you you start. Uh, picking around DeLillo was a huge influence. Like I remember reading this weird math book by DeLillo. Uh, oh, I can't remember, but there, there's, there's scenes from it that I'm like, I, I w- that are almost whole cloth in a way in Broom of the System, for instance, or, you know, end zone, there's these long passages that make it in, make their way into infinite jest. And I mean, it was, instructive for me because he did have this totalizing or kind of, I mean, a, a, you know, a Titan-like uh, persona publicly. And it was neat to see behind the screen a little bit and see how he was wrestling with certain of these ideas or did too, you know, like he didn't come out of nowhere. He comes out of a very specific strain of American fiction. And when you think about writers like Kurt White and, uh, you know, Gilbert Sorrentino and folks who he was hanging out with in Illinois and like in his early days while he was writing some of Infinite Jest, you see... It it's it didn't come out of nowhere, you know. Um, it's almost the it, it, some of his work feels like the pinnacle of that kind of that that uh, heritage in a way. Can can you speak to? It seems like you you both you know, fell deeply in love and then sort of bottomed out in a way. Like yeah. t- tell us a little bit about where you feel like. David Foster Wallace left you short, maybe, and uh, yeah. and and what writers, what other writers you you think of now that maybe fill the gap that you don't feel like he was fulfilling for you? Yeah, I, you know, I I always get in that sense of like when people say I only read the nonfiction, you know, and they, they I feel like that's a popular line now. Like they couldn't read the Wallace's fiction; they can read his nonfiction. And in some ways, I'm the opposite. Uh, I. Um, I think because I'm a little bit more sensitive somehow or like uh, a little less, maybe I'll put it this way. I'm a little less nervous about exposing some of my own, like to put myself on the page and on the line and and um, reveal some things that to me just don't feel like they need to be kept private. Uh, so his nonfiction leaves me wanting some element some other element and it's the personal there's something in there that doesn't come out it feels like uh there's like there's a top on the kettle or or there's a top on the pot a little bit um that you are watching a mind put you know the world together and describe it in this amazing way but you don't quite get the full range of what an essay can do which is to inquire into that very 
no, the consciousness that's putting the world together, mm. right? Um, whereas the fiction, everything feels like it's on the line. Like that's where the work feels most uh, alive to me because I can see him. He needed the scrim of character or persona uh, to to inquire into it, that, that slight distance. Um, some writers, I mean, I think... Uh, Nicholson Baker uh, is is for me the sort of in his best work the adult version of of Wallace in some ways. There's the same um, pleasure in the language. Uh, in this is you know he's he's gone and he gave this amazing gift of his work to the world. But in some ways, and we know that he was struggling with depression and and suicidal tendencies and stuff. And um, and yet some I, I sort of wish that the the work had moved beyond some of that, you know, uh, but that's, that's, you know, n not, not for me to wish, you know, at all. Anytime you start talking like this, it starts to feel really impropriety, like, you know, like, uh, like an impropriety in some way, but, um, but maybe he's, maybe his work suggested, like we were talking about your work earlier, suggested avenues that it didn't go, that you yeah. went yeah, and then wanted him to be there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true, but that in like a very old school paternalistic way of just like, you know, like anyone, did I do okay, daddy? You know, like right. there's like, I think that the... The people who first alert us or inform us as of what literature can do or be, uh, you you also never escape that. And I came up at a time when he was very big, you know, and he um, he and certain other people like I latched on in a way that it felt very close to what he was very good at doing that of of making words do what you could feel like your mind was, you know, that felt like what a mind moving and that you felt in the presence of a, another consciousness. And that as an aspiration seems to me the highest achievement of, of, of art in a way and in a, in a, in a particular way of an American art form, which allows for a certain measure of brokenness to be on the page. So uh, where you have a high gloss of the European literary tradition where things are very polished that achieves its m m like highest form maybe in like Henry James's late work, you know. Uh, we get it, an American tradition. It's funny that I named an American. But we get a, <laughs> the, the more typically American version is like a Twain or, uh, you know, the, these, this certain measure of brokenness that's allowed to exist in the prose, that it stutters, that it uh, maybe elaborates too much, that it um, feels, I don't know, reckless but controlled in a way. You get that with Dennis Johnson to those new stories he you don't exactly know what the pattern is, and there's a loose, there's a suggested looseness on the line level that it's always amazing to me to see how they're they're so tightly structured in a way that the echoes that happen happen at very strategic places, so that what might have felt like a digression is actually part of, you know, a, a fabric that like you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to have you read. I want to have you read one more really short section because I feel like all this this idea of is there a self, what is the self, can you create art that is you and also full of influence mm -hmm. um, 
it 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 also begs the question around empathy, and you you address this question of empathy and in, 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 in interpersonal relationships um, in the essay that you wrote about your neighbor who was murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would love it if you'd read a little section and then just ask you a little bit about it because okay. I thought it was really uh, fascinating. Um, in order to understand what had happened to Peter. Did I need to know that the knife Steve had used was a USMC K-Bar, a fixed blade, leather-handled combat weapon whose clip point gives it a shark-like profile? Did I need to watch as Ernie approximated the blade's length, measuring between his pointer fingers the size of a fish you'd keep? In what way was I edified by descriptions of the wound? by picturing a slot in his chest large enough to accept a silver dollar, or by being asked to imagine his breathing gone disturbingly audible. How necessary was it that I learned that Ernie thought he'd felt, between his compressions, the final beats of Peter's expiring heart? Did these details aid my efforts to understand what had gone down? My gut tells me that, at bottom, this has to do with empathy with our ability to imagine ourselves into another person's situation and exercise deep care. This is an essential characteristic of our humanity after all, isn't it? Part of what sets us apart from the lower order of beasts. My question then is something like, can so-called empathy coexist peaceably alongside the relief and gratitude we feel that what happened to someone else did not happen to us? Does pity preclude care? Can we learn so many details about a story that they cease to be empathically productive? At what point do horrific details begin to double back on themselves, to merely stoke the horror and so stultify any manner of healing? Like trying to extinguish a fire with gasoline. What do we say, for that matter, after we hear such horrible things? To my mind, the most respectful and so least pitying thing we can say is, I can't imagine. But doesn't that seem to be the very opposite of empathy? Or maybe it's empathy's purest expression, in that it articulates our inability to comprehend the details, allows them to haunt and confound us too, and therefore validate the sufferer's own confusion, the ineffability of his or her pain. And perhaps this is the final mystery at the bottom of all tragedy, the way life can scramble our greatest humanizing resource the imagination. We've been listening to Chesta Knapp read from Up, Up, Down, Down. I, I love this meditation, and partly um, I love that you raise all these questions but don't answer any of them ultimately, because um, I feel like a lot of people are writing or reading partially motivated or thinking that they're partially motivated, motivated by empathy, and yet the idea that not being able to articulate or imagine might be the highest form of it um, and that knowing less details rather than more is sometimes better. Like, so right. that list at the beginning of all the things you learned about how your neighbor died, does that make you more empathetic or, or, right. or far less empathetic? Um, it makes me think of Keats negative capability. Mm-hmm. And then this idea we were talking about earlier about allowing space for the reader, um, right. allowing the space for the other really in your yeah. work. I wonder if that pulling back from detail or the pulling back from knowing or 
providing an answer right. is part of, or sometimes is part of the power of, of creating empathy. I think 100% uh, um, that part of what you're doing is trying to release a shape in the reader's mind that will echo or continue to resonate after the thing has been read, right? That, that certain questions, it's more productive to try to ask or think that you're at, to write towards the right questions than to try to offer up a, uh, or to hazard an answer to me. And so for me, the, in, you know, the, the project of the book in each of the essays in a way was to put enough thinking in there that would activate certain questions that would hopefully kind of, you know, maybe signal a kind of path that a reader could go down or just to get the questions going in a reader's mind. Um, and some of that has to do with empathy and community and race stuff in this in this essay, particularly in gentrification. And at bottom, I think that essay in particular is just about the act of storytelling that I was discouraged and dissatisfied with the way Peter's story had been told in the news. And Walker Percy has this great line, the, the voluptuous sensationalism of local news. And I sort of repurposed that and stole that from him but in the, in the piece. But it, there was something about the way these stories – and so for me, it's kind of like, well, do I need to give – do I need to find out everything that happened? Or, or like in that passage, it's like, no, there, to do so is to miss the point. That's to also participate in the same sensationalism. I, I, I mean, and Les, Leslie's great on this this notion of whether empathy is <laughs> at all possible and whether it should be the thing that we aspire for most, right? So if your goal, if your highest goal with a piece of art is to say you experience something like, more or less like another person would, that eradicate, that's such a presumptuous notion, right? Like, so that what might be what we used to just call sympathy or, you know, care, uh, still seem to me the highest ideals. Like I have problems with, hmm. with this notion of empathy that I, I was hoping to point up in that passage that, that, um, how else are we, that, that's to eradicate the particularities of a person's situation in a way that isn't productive, right? Um, whereas if we can just presume that there are things that are always going to be unknowable and unexperienceable or unintelligible, then that starts to look a little bit more like something that a starting off point. Like a, that we can say, okay, well, I know you're coming from a place that you don't fully know yourself. I don't fully know myself. So how can we say that I'm going to experience the full range of what you're talking about, right. you know? So uh, it's a very sci – it comes from science, that word empathy. It comes from, you know, aesthetic science that you would imagine yourself into a painting in a way. But um, I, I just – I find it wanting as a, as a goal because I, I think it uh, lets people off the hook in a way. Like you either get it or you don't. And the work of doing, of, of sympathizing, of caring, yeah. is actually uh, involves unknowing in a way that um, 
the notion of empathy for me, at least in the ways I've encountered it, doesn't seem to suggest. And what's kind of cool about that little section is that you're you're saying that, but you're also modeling it because yeah. you're not answering any of these questions. Yeah. We don't know exactly what you, if you do even come down on one side or the other for that matter. Yeah. I, and that was really important to me because I, I tried to, um, uh, pair back on the, on the thinky parts, uh, any stance, you know, like, again, I wanted to, um, allow those questions to just be activated in a way that felt open-ended because I think that they are open-ended yeah. in a way that you live with and continue to refine your relationship to as you get more experience. And uh, like we were talking about, the notion of the anxiety of influence changed for me as I got older and lived with certain questions of, of, you know, influence. And, um, that felt like if you can activate those questions, then you're giving the gift of thinking to a reader that is more lasting, hopefully, than any one stance on a question in relation to a question. And that's where I think that art diverges from the political. Political has to simplify. You have to write. You have like that's the point of politics is if you're going to have a democracy, you've got to, you've got to find a line where things start to simplify. Whereas art can, can move towards the muck and just sit there and say, this is actually a lot more confusing than our politics gives credit to. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And offering any stance immediately, immediately asks someone to say, well, I don't believe that. You know, and, and then and then you're losing someone and you're having an unproductive relationship. So anytime an essay like starts to outline a stance, that's those are places where I just feel like I don't really want to write that kind of thing because well, it's part that, of a different economy. Yeah. And that's interesting. You've talked about this. I think the last time we ran into each other was the you were having to write all of these essays that were supposed to be published at the time of, of <laughs> yeah. this book coming out, which points to this, um, how loosey goosey the word essay is. So like right. what you're saying is I don't want to write the type of essay that would do what you just outlined, Yeah, but that is also called an essay right. and there's a tradition around that essay, yeah. but then listicles like yeah. you're writing yeah. or maybe you wrote for a promotion of the book right. have the same insultingly have the same name yeah. as essay and you just wrote an essay collection. Yeah. I mean, part of this comes down to that notion that I really wanted this to feel like a book and worked hard because essay collections so I rarely do that. You know, they what they do is just collect a writer's, usually an otherwise serious writer, right? Like a, a novelist or a poet, you know, will write these occasional things for hoity-toity magazines. And then what you'll end up with is just a miscellany, you know? It's like, oh, here's, you know, Kutzia's, you know, late essays, 1981 to 1997. You know, so you get these, like, artificial, cheap ways of gathering the, the their thoughts and... Yeah, I, I have a I, I have a I have a problem with with that, but only insofar as it feels like it's doesn't 
it's not imaginative, right? So we, we all have experience writing essays from growing up where you would write an essay about a book or about something and you'd cite, about, cite from other thinkers. And so we have a very rigid notion of the essay that I think is, not, is, is cheap. And it's to treat the form with the same lack of imagination that we all sort of tacitly agree that it exists on, which is it it is secondary. It can't be uh, it can't be an act of the imagination on the order of a of fiction because you're only taking something that's already happened to you. And well, yeah. that's and also that seems weird that that's where we arrived, given that someone like like Emerson who people could point to as one of the great essayists and and is nothing like that. No, he's nothing like that. And that's, I, I, this is just a conception that comes to us from the sort of, uh, you know, education industrial complex, you know, that like there, that what you need to do with, um, with the form is just marshal out an argument. And again, that's a political thing and not an artistic one, you know, and that, the great essayists and I and I feel like we're we're living through thankfully a renaissance like with Maggie and Sarah Manguso and Leslie and they're just like Andrew Monson and David Shields and all these folks who have broken the form and shown us it can be anything and that in fact it's uh, it's really pointing up this notion that um, that that the, that imagination is more than sci-fi you know that like dragon but it's also more than like uh domestic dramas that you're able to sort of um solve the algebra of whatever domestic drama you've written right so like imagination is actually a, a fuller thing than just yeah than just that okay so now that this book is out in the world. It's an object. It's apart <laughs> from you. I'm pulling it away from yeah. your body right now. Um, what what is that? What is that achieved in terms of where do you see yourself going next? Um, do you feel like there's some sort of completion to this 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 line of questioning? And whatever you're working on now is a new is a, a new inquiry, or do you feel like you're on a certain another orbit around some of the 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 same concerns? There are certain questions that uh, about family and, in a way, race and upbringing that are that are sort of animating some of the stuff I'm thinking about and reading about and working on now. Um, I I don't think that notions of authenticity are. I think I'm kind of done with those for now. I don't think they're they're. Uh, They'll find their ways into whatever you work on because part of what you're doing as you're working is questioning at every point whether the the sentence or scene you're working on feels true to you, you know, and looking for those moments that where the bottom feels like it's giving out. And so in some ways I articulated what might just be my strategy of working through, you know, through right. writing this book. Uh, but um, 
What, I do, do you have a book project? Yeah, I'm working on I, I, <laughs> to call it a book project is I mean it's a, it's a blastula of a thing, you know, <laughs> it's some, you know, zygotish whatever, but I I do feel like it's going to be using a persona like of me, like a nonfiction, but it's going to walk the line between nonfiction and fiction a little bit more self-consciously. So is it going to be sort of auto like the auto fiction there'll tradition? Be a, yeah, there'll be a there'll be some of that. I mean it um it's interesting to me to think what, about what happens when you tell a person this really is true and then just roll with that, you know? So I, I, I like a lot of people, has been, have been sort of awed and frustrated by and uh, envious of and all this by th those folks like Sheila Hetty and, and Ben Lerner and um, the folks who are nosing into that territory. Uh, but I do think there's some fruitful stuff that can happen when you, 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 you employ your persona in a way that, um, I don't know, allows you to think about, again, this real fake. Like, what's fiction? What's not fiction, you know? Um, yeah. Anyway, just artistically, it seems interesting. I, I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show yeah. today, Cheston. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. We're talking today to Cheston Knapp, the managing editor of Tin House and the writer of Up, Up, Down, Down. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Chesta Knapp's work can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers, where he added a reading of his essay, Essay at Hand, both a defense and lament about the essay form, joining poems by John Keane, essays and stories by Carmen Maria Machado, and more. And finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatit Ami, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>